Hey, it's Alan, and I just wanted to let you know that you can now listen to the ongoing history of new music early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. Uh, I'm glad you could come in, Dave. Uh, sit down. Now, as your accountant, I'm afraid I have some bad news. What? Is my third ex-wife still complaining about alimony? After all I did for her. No, 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 I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's worse than that. You're broke. What do you mean? You're out of money, lad. You're busted. Skinned. Poverty-stricken. All your lines of credit are at their limit, and your remaining credit cards, they're cooked as well. The ones that haven't already been suspended have been cut up, or have gone into collection. You've spent every single cent you ever earned with the ban, and then some. You're done, mate. I may have to sell you into slavery just so I can get paid myself. You mean... I'm poor. Look, when the band broke up a few years ago, the money stopped coming in, but you kept spending it like it was. You have dozens of creditors, landlords, and uh, suppliers who are all screaming for your head on a stick. And let's not even talk about the government and your taxes. What are taxes? Exactly. Son, if you don't start earning again, you're going to end up sleeping in the park and talking to the pigeons for the rest of your life. Ah, oh, no problem. I'll just get the band back together. We'll do one of those triumphant reunion tours that everybody's doing these days, and everything will be hunky-dory. Don't worry about it. Your drummer's dead. Oh, yeah. Oh, no problem. I'll just get me son to fill in. And that third ex-wife that got away because she ran away with your singer? Not a problem. We'll let bygones be bygones. That's what I always say, anyway. Well, whatever you do, do it fast. In fact, please leave by crawling out the window. There are some big guys in the lobby waiting to break your knees. This is the Ongoing History of New Music Podcast with Alan Cross. Welcome again, I'm Alan Cross, and this is the first part of an update on the Reunion Parade. The bands who have, for whatever reason, decided to get back together despite all the things that drove them apart in the first place. Over the last 10 or 15 years, there's been a huge resurgence in the number of reunions. The major motivation has been, let's face it, money, because, well, there is no pension plan in rock, and being a rock star doesn't necessarily endow you with a lot of portable skills, if you know what I mean. And after living in a rock star bubble for years, it's hard to make the transition to being a civilian, a normal person. You miss the crowds, you miss the gigs. And you don't want to believe that you're getting old. And like that good-looking high school quarterback who's now bald and fat, you don't want to believe that your best years are behind you. So what we're going to do for the next three shows is examine a series of high-profile breakups in the circumstances that brought these bands back together. Now, I've done my best to be as accurate as possible, but sometimes it's difficult to nail down the exact date when a band decided to break up and the exact moment when they decided to reform. So we need to cut a little bit of slack in those directions. That's rule number one. There are also bands who have broken up and reformed multiple times. The Happy Mondays come to mind. They get together every time they have tax problems. So we're going to leave those kinds of groups off the list. So we want clean breaks and definite reunions. That's rule number two. Rule number three is we're going to start with the shortest intervals between breakup and reunion and work towards the longest. You got it? We're going to start with a band that was apart for three years, three months, and three days. Limp Bizkit was one of the bands of the new metal era of the late 90s. They sold millions of records, millions of t-shirts, millions of concert tickets, and executives at their record company thought enough of Fred Durst to make him an executive. I guess they didn't mind the hat. But by the middle of 2005, Limp Bizkit in general, and Fred Durst in particular, had worn out their welcome with the public. Their sound and approach had just gone out of style. And there were internal problems too. 
first guitarist, Wes Borland, had quit in 2001. He was replaced by Mike Smith, but by 2004 he had gone. Wes was back. And drummer John Otto had issues, too, so he wasn't able to do much. An EP called The Unquestionable Truth Part 1 was released in the spring of 2005, but nobody seemed to care. A Greatest Hits record followed on November 8th of that year, and then nothing. So what we're going to do is use that date as our breakup date. November 8th, 2005. Fast forward to the fall of 2008. There were rumors that differences had been fixed and that Limp Bizkit was back together. And on February the 11th of 2009, those who were following Fred on Twitter, I can't imagine why, but he had some followers, got this message. 1 a.m. Pacific time, limpbiscuit.com tonight. That was the signal that the band had got back together. Three months later, the original lineup, something that we hadn't seen in eight years, played their first gig together. There was Fred, there was Wes, there was bass player Sam Rivers, drummer John Otto, and DJ Lethal. That gig was played in Riga, Latvia. And on August the 24th of 2009, everyone started working on a new album. In case you need reminding, here's Biscuit at their peak. It was 1999. The album was called Significant Other, and the song is Nookie. Limp Biscuit and Nookie, apart for three years, three months, and three days. Next, it's the biggest reunion story of 2009. After a good run in tens of millions of albums, Blink-182 started to fracture. There was a tour with No Doubt in 2004 where things got really tense. At the end of that No Doubt tour, Tom decided he didn't need this crap anymore, and he demanded six months off. I need more time with my family, he said. Well, that was understandable, but... This was a problem since a big U.S. tour had already been planned. They were also supposed to help out Lincoln Park with a big charity event in South Asia designed to raise money for victims of the 2004 tsunami. Meanwhile, Tom's back was bad, really bad, and this led to an addiction to prescription painkillers. Everything finally blew up on February 22, 2005. Tom called their manager and said, I quit, and he went off and formed Angels and Airwaves, which did okay. Well, Mark and Travis stuck together in a new band they called Plus 44, which also did okay. But then a couple of things began to bring everybody back together. First of all, Tom broke his addiction to prescription painkillers by going cold turkey. He said he sweated it out in a room for two weeks, hallucinating. Second, their longtime producer, Jerry Finn, died of a cerebral hemorrhage in August of 2008. That brought everybody together at the funeral where the usual sort of self-examination about life, the universe, and everything happened. And then third, it got really weird on September 21st, 2008, when Travis and his buddy DJ Am were the only two survivors of a jet plane crash. Something went wrong on takeoff. The private Learjet never made it into the air, slamming into a fence at the end of the runway. There was an explosion, there was a fire, and Travis ended up with horrible second and third degree burns. He ended up in intensive care for weeks. And among his visitors, Tom and Mark, again more soul-searching. And there could be a fourth thing that led to the inevitable reunion. Tom DeLong and his wife have been caught up in the housing bust in the U.S. They had this huge house in a place called Rancho Santa Fe, California. Gated golf course community, 1.1 acres, 6,500 square feet, five bathrooms, and they sunk a ton of money into this house. But then they placed it up for sale for $8 million. No takers. 
So they dropped the price to 6.25 million. Nothing. Last price I heard was 5.1 million. Factor in the renovations and Tom took like a 20% hit. Anyway, bottom line is that everyone got back together, started talking and decided that, yeah, you know what? It was time to put the band back together. So on February the 8th, 2009, three years, 11 months and 17 days since Tom said, I quit. Blink announced live on the Grammy Awards that they were back together. And that's about the time she walked away from me. Nobody likes you when you're 23. And you still act like you're in freshman year. What the hell is wrong with me? My friends say I should act my age. And that's about the time that she broke up with me. No one should take themselves so seriously. Blink 182, back after three years, 11 months, and 17 days apart. Next on our list is Blur. This was the biggest British reunion story of 2009. It's really hard to pin down exactly when they broke up, but the date I'm going to assign is October the 1st, 2004. Blur's Think Tank album was released on May 8th of 2003. By this time, guitarist Graham Coxon had been asked to leave the band. Apparently he had a bad attitude and he had stopped showing up to recording sessions. They did tour behind the album, but with Graham gone, the original lineup of Blur ceased to be. It also didn't help that bass player Alex James was a boozer and a druggie. Drummer Alex Roundtree got bored. He went off to law school while singer Damon Albarn was busy with gorillas in another band called The Good, The Bad, and The Queen. He also got deep into Middle Eastern and African music, and oh yeah, there was that Chinese opera he wrote. As far as I can tell, the blur that everyone knew had stopped functioning by October 1st, 2004. But in the background, there were all these rumors that blur proper blur would get back together. There were meetings, there were lunches, and even some aborted recording sessions. But it wasn't until December the 9th of 2008 that there was any kind of confirmation about anything. That's when Blur said, okay, it's true, we are getting back together, we're going to play some shows in 2009. And they did, starting in June. If we use those two dates, October 1st, 2004, and December 9th, 2008, Blur was apart for four years, two months, and eight days. Blur, who, according to my calculations, which in this case are only approximate, were apart for four years, two months, and eight days. We have to give some leeway to this next band, too, the Stone Temple Pilots. Their initial dissolution was a gradual thing. There was never really a formal breakup announcement. The band just quietly evaporated, ceased to be. The best I can tell, STP was done by about September 1st, 2003. Scott Wyland had his issues, and he had lined himself against the DeLeo brothers. It was, it was done. The DeLeos formed a new band called Army of Anyone with Richard Patrick a filter, but nothing much happened. Meanwhile, Wyland ended up in Velvet Revolver with the ex-Guns N' Roses guys, and they did pretty well for two albums. You know, managing all those egos and talent must have been tough, and it's amazing they lasted for two albums and a bunch of tours over three years. All right, so how did everything for STP come back together? The story is that Mary Forsberg, who, by the way, is now Wyland's estranged wife, she called the DeLeo brothers. And she said, hey, you know, we're having this private party. You want to come over and play? That was sometime in 2007. Around the same time, some offers had been floated from promoters, offering decent coin if the band would reform for a series of summer festivals. At that point, it was thought that a reunion was a done deal, but nothing happened. 
Meanwhile, Weiland had his velvet revolver commitments. There were other issues, too. There was a lawsuit from their record company saying that STP never really fulfilled their original contract in terms of the number of albums that they were supposed to make. Weiland's marriage was on the rocks. There was an eight-day jail sentence on a DUI charge. So, in other words, things were really complicated. But then, a surprise. On March 21st, 2008, Weiland announced in the middle of a Velvet Revolver show that this would be his last tour with the band. Just imagine how the other guys might have reacted on stage that night. So when did STP reform? Well, after all kinds of digging, the best date I can come up with is about April 15th, 2008. That would mean they were apart for approximately four years, seven months, and 14 days. Don't tip a pilots apart for about four and a half years. In a moment, the stories behind the reunions of Alice in Chains and Creed. This is part one of a three-parter designed to get us caught up in all the band reunions that we've seen over the last few years. We started with groups that were apart for the least amount of time and were gradually working up to the longest interval between breakup and reunion. Alice in Chains really wasn't much of a band for the last couple of years of their original existence. And this is because singer Lane Staley had turned into such a super hardcore junkie and he wasn't able to do much of anything except stay in his condo and paint and play video games and shoot smack into his veins. He rarely went out. He had his drugs delivered to the door. Bill payments were automatically withdrawn from his bank account. And he just kind of sat there losing his teeth due to malnutrition. Lane eventually died. It was sometime in the first week of April of 2002. He wasn't found until two weeks later. It was the 19th when they found him. And with him gone, singer, you know, Allison Chains was done. Or at least that's what a lot of people assume. Allison Chains never really broke up. But with no singer and so many scars affecting so many members of the band, they really didn't exist either. So they were in this land of limbo. The thing that started the reunion was the Indian Ocean tsunami on Boxing Day 2004. Three members of Alice in Chains, guitarist Jerry Cantrell, bass player Mike Inez, and drummer Sean Kinney, were asked to play a benefit for the victims of the disaster, and they said, yeah, we'll do it. They used a series of guest singers that night. So that was a start. In the spring of 2006, they played another benefit, again with a series of guest vocalists. One of those guests was a dude named William Duvall. He was the singer for an Atlanta band called Come With The Fall. And as far as I can tell, William met Jerry Cantrell in about 2000 when Comes With The Fall moved to Los Angeles. Later, the band opened for one of Cantrell's solo tours. This would be about 2002. In fact, Comes With The Fall also functioned as Jerry's backing band on that solo tour. Everybody became friends. Talk turned to having Duval be a permanent new singer for Alice in Chains. And it happened. The first time Alice in Chains appeared with Duval as their vocalist was at a gig in Las Vegas on September the 22nd, 2006. So that's a break of four years, nine months, and 18 days. The first album featuring Duval was Black Gives Way to Blue. It came out on September the 9th, 2009. And it sounds like this. A trick of the train in my Al 
Alice in Chains, version 2.0, featuring singer William Duvall. Up next is Creed. Now, like Limp Bizkit, this is a band that sold millions of records and concert tickets. The critics were never really kind to these guys, and for many people, they were one of the most uncool bands on the planet. The pompous, quasi-religious lyrics, the perceived messianic image, and the erratic behavior really pissed people off. And like Limp Bizkit, they saw the public turn on them rather quickly, beginning sometime in mid-2000. Actually, the end of Creed involved a fight with Limp Bizkit. There was a concert in New York that summer, and Fred Durst dissed Creed singer Scott Stapp, and Stapp responded by challenging Fred to a boxing match. A bigger problem was founding member and guitarist Brian Marshall, some kind of dust-up and disagreement with Scott. That was after Brian, during a radio interview, dissed Pearl Jam's ability to write songs. Bad idea. Meanwhile, Scott was getting disastrous PR. For a while, he was being held up as this virtuous father and husband. But then several things surfaced to make that image look hypocritical, including the time that he threw a bottle at his wife. Then Scott got into a car accident in July of 2002, forcing the cancellation of a good chunk of a big tour. Scott was charged with reckless driving of his SUV. During his recovery, Scott became addicted to the painkiller Percocet. Plus, there was the Xanax, which was supposed to help with anxiety and panic attacks. And he was on steroids for an inflamed throat. So, yeah, Scott got kind of loopy, especially when alcohol was added to the mix. Everything really blew up at a show in Chicago on December the 29th of 2002 when an obviously drunk and high Scott, carrying a bottle of JD with him, he became so zonked that he fell down a bunch of times and staggered around for the rest of the time except for the songs that he sang lying flat on his back. And that show was so appalling to fans that some of them actually filed a lawsuit over it. Oh, and it got worse. Around the same time, their third album, Weathered, sold its six millionth copy. That's fine, but then Scott decided that he wanted to kill himself. After a big bottle of Jack, he actually put a handgun, an automatic type that SWAT teams use, he put it up to his head before deciding that, you know what, I have a son, this is stupid, I'm not going to do it. Now, that might have been a wake-up call, but it didn't last very long. By early 2004, he went to Maui, where he was able to get himself addicted to Oxycontin, another powerful painkiller. So it came to pass that on June 4th of 2004, Creed formally announced that they were done. Some of the band went on to form a group called Alter Bridge, and Scott kept getting in trouble, like the brawl with three guys from 311 in the lobby of a Baltimore hotel in 2006. But then there was some kind of thaw, some kind of epiphany. In 2008, Scott and guitarist Mark Tremonti met up at the Hard Rock Hotel in Vegas, and they decided that it was time to get back together and set things right. They did not want to leave Creed's legacy this way. Talk to Scott about this. You've probably answered this question a million times, but uh, the last time we had a Creed album was in 2001. So you've technically been apart since since then. Why now? Why today for the reunion? Well, you know, it, it, it's kind of a it's kind of a reintroduction. You know, is how the band would would characterize it. I mean, it's almost a rebirth. Uh, you know, I feel that. Uh, you know, in 2002, uh, you know, it was it was definitely time for us to to take a break from from what it had become there the last six to eight months, uh, and 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 I think the time was 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 so beneficial and so necessary for all of us individually and collectively, and uh, you know the time was was very well spent. You know, uh, all of us. Uh, you know, most importantly. Uh, 
establishing a firm foundation in our in, with our families and for me my faith and uh, just kind of reconnecting with with the world and and, and gaining an identity uh, emotionally spiritually mentally artistically outside of creed um, and uh, being confident in, in in who we are independently of that and and uh, and then having that time to honestly reflect back on uh, you know the prior years and 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 it kind of puts things in perspective when when you when you look back and and realize that uh, you know we couldn't let a six to eight month period in a in a you know a nearly twenty year relationship with Mark and I and a and a nearly fourteen year relationship with Flip and Brian uh, we we couldn't let something. Uh, so small in the grand scheme of things characterized who, who this band was what we were at the end and, and, and what we are now and uh, you know it's, it's, it's a small chapter in a, in, a, in, a, in a novel so to speak and I, I think got settled uh, and, and, and comfortable it was just a natural migration to to want to reach out and reconnect with, with individuals that you've spent the majority of your life with and uh, and also that that uh, have an impact on you artistically that uh, you can't find anywhere else. On April 27, 2009, Creed formally announced that the original lineup was back together and recording a new album. That record was called Full Circle, and the first single was entitled Overcome. Creed, back together after being apart for four years, ten months, and twenty-three days. We have time for one more story on part one of our reunion special, and we'll look at how the Cranberries kissed and made up. The Cranberries were one of the biggest-selling alt-rock bands of the 90s. Their first two records were monstrous. The second sold almost 17 million copies. It's hard to find an exact date, but September 15th, 2003 seems to be about right. All the members scattered after that date to do their own thing. I sat down with singer Dolores O'Riordan and, um, well, let's get her to tell us what happened. I hadn't seen the lads physically for six and a half years, right? Because we left the band, right? And we were sick of each other and we got tired of being in the band and whatnot, so we all went off and did our own thing. And I just didn't see Mike Ferganol actually for six and a half years till this year. Trinity College made me a member of their philosophical society and uh, they wanted me to do a couple of songs, you know, and I was like... This you know, is Trinity the, College Dublin? Yeah, yeah. WBH is a member and Nelson Mandela and Mother Teresa and, you know, it's a very cool kind of society that was founded in the 1800s, WBH and or whatever. Poetry, philosophy, all that kind of stuff, you know, to encourage that. And so I said, okay, I'll, I'll do a couple of songs, right, so I got a quartet and I phoned up Mike and all the Hogan's and I said, lads, listen, will you come up and play with me? And they were like, God, we haven't seen you for six and a half years. Yeah, that would be great. So they came up, right? I was a bit apprehensive then walking into Trinity, you know, having not seen them for so long. And when I walked in, it just felt really natural. It felt like I saw them yesterday, you know what I mean? And it was lovely. It was really like, oh, it's like your family or something. And so then I thought that was really nice. And when we performed together, it felt really good, right? And so then... Um, my son then made his confirmation in June and uh, I invited Mike Ferg and Noel with their wives and children. 
And so that was in June, I was approaching the restaurant and now I hadn't seen Fergus, my first time seeing Fergus since we went our separate ways. And when I walked to the restaurant, there was like a big gang of kids. It was the Cranbabies. There was a big load of kids and they were big like, you know, some of them taller than me. And obviously the lads were having a good time because they had a load of babies. <laughs> they were hatching. And so all these kids were there and um, that was a kind of another thing. It was like, our kids don't remember us. So my son's like bigger than me and he, he doesn't remember the cranberries. So we have to do it for the kids too. And the fans are going, the fans are pumped, they're delighted, you know. Um, and I mean, they've hung in there for 20 years, you know what I mean? So it'll be a blast, it'll be great fun, you know. Back with a look ahead to part two of a reunion special in just a sec. So we're up to an interval of about six years. Six years between when a band breaks up and when they decide to get back together. There are two more groups that fall into this time frame, which we didn't get to. The first is Rage Against the Machine. They fell apart on October the 18th, 2000, and didn't decide to play together until January 22nd, 2007. So that works out to about six years, three months, and five days. The second is the Smashing Pumpkins. Billy Corgan retired the name with a final show in Chicago on December 2nd of 2000, but then he vowed to bring the band back the same day he released his solo album, which was June 25th, 2005. The official confirmation of that reunion came April 30th of 2006, and the first official reunion gig was in Paris, France on May 22nd, 2007. I think the best way to measure that interval is between the last gig with the old Pumpkins and the first gig with the new one. So that works out to six years, five months, and 20 days. Next time, we're going to look at groups who were apart for at least seven years and for as long as almost 17. Technical Productions by Rob Johnston. I'm Alan Cross. You've been listening to the Ongoing History of New Music podcast with Alan Cross. Subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Spotify, and everywhere you find your favorite podcasts. 